0: missionaries out over the years. And um, Daniel's just a good friend. He's got uh, a wife of 12 years. He's got three beautiful children. Um, one as recent as three months old, two months old, and he's doing well. Yeah. Difficult delivery, but he's doing well. Yeah. So we just wanted to introduce him, um, say, hey to, say hi to him after the service, and I want to just take a minute to uh, pray for him. Yeah, God, we are grateful for your work uh, that is going forth um, all throughout this great planet. And uh, God, we thank you that um, that you will accomplish the work that you set out to accomplish and that the gates of hell will not prevail. And I thank you for Daniel and his wife and uh, others in the um, West African um, ministry of SIM. And God, I just pray for, uh, for your power to move them forth in the midst of um, many struggles um, uh, all over the world, but particularly in West Africa. God, we're um, it's still a third world country where um, where money is uh, is scarce, uh, where disease um, and um, war um, and uh, is plentiful. And so, God, I pray that you would just help Daniel and uh, his family and those that he ministers with to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that they would uh, not fight any other battles, but they would just hold out the gospel that can, the only gospel that can transform culture one person at a time. So God be with him, I thank you for him, and uh, pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people say amen. Yeah, good to see you brother. Yeah, welcome. So God is, God's work is, uh, is going strong all over the, all over the world. Uh, uh, Boko Haran, Boca um, Haran, Covid, uh, there's nothing that is going to stop the gospel from going forth um, in this in this uh, in this world. You know, even even our own sin. Um, I was just thinking even before before I introduce this and I pray in just a little while here. Um, you know, um, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. Um, I know mine is. Um, you know, it's a uh, like we're headed to uh, some people's house last night, people we dearly love. We're not sure where they're at with Jesus. We've been ministering and reaching out to them, have had genuine friendship with them, and like I'm just in a bad mood. I'm in a bad mood because I'm not like like I don't have the sermon dialed in. I don't really understand the text, you know. And so I'm like grumbling all the way up to these people's house. And then like like right as we approach the driveway, I just stopped and I just prayed and said, God, like I'm mad and I'm in a bad mood and. Like would you just give me your grace? So I don't know where you're coming from today or this week but I just want to remind you that God meets us right where we're at. Um, that, that He died, uh, not because we're perfect but because we're sinners. And He's given us our, His Spirit to, to move us along to, in, this, in this journey um, called life, this imperfect journey called life. Um, he's perfect, He's good, um, even when we're imperfect and not so good. Amen? Um, we get to uh, launch into this um, this great book called the Letter to the Hebrews, and we're going to be unpacking uh, verses one through four today. And then uh, next week, uh, Stephen's going to finish out first chapter, and then uh, and then Gordon Pinville going to kick off the uh, the first part of chapter two. The message of Hebrews at its core is the gospel. It's all about the gospel. We get to preach Christ and Christ crucified um, every single Sunday. Uh, We do that whether it's uh, explicit in the passage or not, but in Hebrews it's explicit almost in every single passage. That the message of Hebrews is about the gospel, the good news of redemption for struggling sinners. And it asserts Jesus as a fulfillment of, of all Old Testament promises. We don't know who wrote this deeply theological letter various opinions have been held out there. Some say that Paul wrote it, some say that Apollos wrote it, others say that Barnabas wrote it. There's a whole host of other New Testament writers that, um, that people say may have written it. Um, but we don't truly know. The bottom line is is we don't know. Beyond that we're, we're, we also don't exactly know when Hebrews was written. We think it was sometime before um, probably 65 A.D., certainly before 70 A.D. 65 A.D. is when Nero started persecuting Rome. 70 A.D. is when the temple was destroyed. And what was destroyed when the temple was destroyed was all the temple practices. And, um, And the people that that this author is writing to understand temple practices. They, are, um, they actually they want to go back to the old way of sacrificing and having the priest's, sac- uh, priest's sacrifice. So we think it was uh, quite assuredly before AD 70. Um, the, general situ- the general situation into which Hebrews was written is pretty clear. Um, apparently some of these Jewish uh, Christians, these were, uh, the audience was more than likely, um, certainly were Christians and more than likely they were Jewish Christians. Some of them might have been Hellenist, what is a Hellenist? A Hellenist is, is a Gentile um, that was converted to Judaism who was then converted to Christianity. Um, so it was written to Christians that had some type of Jewish knowledge. So the, the, these Christians that were um, living in a time uh, probably uh, right before Nero's persecution, before the fall of the temple, they were facing persecution themselves um, for their new Christian faith. So the author of Hebrews is writing to them to encourage them not to give up and to hold fast to their faith in Jesus Christ. The way the writer does this is by showing in one chapter after another, there's 13 chapters, how Jesus is better. He's better than the, than the old pillars of the, of the Old Testament, the, the angels, Moses, Joshua, the priests, the sacrifice, the Old Covenant, even Mount Zion, that Jesus is better than all of those good things. The implied purpose of the book is to encourage Christians to stand firm and hold fast to the final words and the finished work of Jesus and not pin our hopes on any system or practice. That the word of God is living and active. I mean, it was it was written to a particular audience in uh, first century A.D., but it is for us today. It's not only for us to like um, to 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 read the word and to to bring it into our intellect, but to have it uh, saturate our hearts and to bring application in the way that we live and walk as God's children. And the question that we're going to ask is really the theme of this series. We're going to ask this question every week: Is Jesus better? Is Jesus better? And there's two great themes in this book that we'll see in the opening verses today. Um, the, the four verses that we're going to unpack today actually expose the uh, two great themes of the book of Hebrews. The first theme is God's word. God has spoken all that He needs to say through Christ. That the canon is closed. He's done speaking. Yes, He prompts us by His Spirit, but the, 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 the timeless Word of God is finished. The second is God's work. God has done all He wants to do through Jesus Christ. Pray with me, would you? God, we thank You for uh, Your living and active and abiding Word. We thank You that Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it pierces us deeply. We thank you that your, a word is, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a mirror unto our soul. God, we thank you that we live on this side of your, the fulfillment of your promises. And that we get to um, see your character. And we get to see your glory in all 66 books of this um, holy, um, infallible, inerrant word of God. So God, I pray that you would be with us today. God, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a beggar in need of grace. God I don't have like three points to uh, preach this morning but God I have your word and I want to just proclaim it and I want to shout it out and I pray God that you would change us from one degree of glory to another that you would change each of us, that none of us have arrived, we're being progressively transformed or sanctified into your image and we will be fully perfect with you one day but in the meantime God we need you. And I pray, God, that you would uh, use your word today to conform us to the image of Jesus for your glory and for our joy and good. And God's people say, amen. Our great and almighty God is a speaking God. He spoke creation into existence. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He created you and me for relationship and any relationship, the pinnacle of the relationship, the, the heart of that relationship is communication. You think about your relational difficulties, it usually translates into communication difficulties. Um, any issues that Nancy and I have in our marriage, it always goes back to communication. I'm trying to convince her to be a better communicator. It has nothing to do with me. After God banished Adam and Eve from the garden and his presence, he communicated his plan to restore the pinnacle of his creation, you and me, all of humanity, into a relationship with himself. He communicated a promise that they, didn't, they surely didn't understand then. He said the woman's offspring, Eve's offspring, would crush the head of the serpent and conquer the power of sin and Satan and death. Over time, Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets, uttering promises promises and warnings throughout the various covenants. And at the heart of His communication was His promise to make all things new and all things right by establishing His kingdom and rule through His Messiah. God's progressive revelation is an important truth to understanding the reading of the Bible. That God progressively reveals his nature and his truth. Every promise God made through the ages has progressively built upon his prior promises. This means that the the progress of his revelation reveals expanded meanings of earlier biblical texts. that, That scripture builds upon scripture. Later biblical writers further interpret earlier biblical writings in ways that amplify the earlier text's these subsequent interpretations may formulate meanings that earlier authors may not have even had in their mind but don't but in the same breath don't contradict their original essential meaning this is what i'm trying to say that the original authors likely were not exhaustively aware of the full extent of what they were writing in this regard fulfillment often flushes out prophecy with details of which even the prophet may have not been fully aware. There's a man by the name of G.K., uh, I think it's pronounced Beake, B E A K E, who has written several um, commentaries. And to, to illustrate this, this, the, the beauty of, progressive, of uh, progressive revelation, G.K. Beale asks us to imagine a father back in 1900 promising his young son a horse and buggy when he gets married one day. He promises it to him. And here's what he says about that. During the early years of the son's expectation, the son reflects on the particular size of the buggy. He's imagining the size of the buggy that his dad had promised him when he gets married. He imagines its contours and its style and its beautiful leather seat and the size and breed of the horse that would draw the buggy. Perhaps the father had knowledge from earlier experimentation elsewhere that the invention of the automobile was on the horizon, but coined the promise to his son in terms that his son would understand. Years later, when the son marries, the father gives the couple an automobile, which has since been invented and mass-produced. Is the son disappointed in receiving a car instead of a horse and buggy? Is this not a literal fulfillment of this promise? In fact the essence of the Father's word has remained the same, a convenient mode of transportation. What has changed is a precise form of the transportation promised. The progress of technology has escalated the fulfillment of the pledge in a way that could not have been conceived of when the son was young. Nevertheless, in the light of the latter development of technology, the promise is viewed as literally and faithfully carried out in a greater way than earlier apprehended. apprehended. In the same way, the progressive revelation of God's word is not from lesser to more true, but from promise to fulfillment. That is the the direction of progressive revelation. Revelation. Biblical history is divided up into two distinct ages, the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. The Old Testament prophets talked about the age of fulfillment as the latter days, the days to come. The New Testament authors tell us that these days of fulfillment are now called the last days. That they've arrived with the coming of Jesus Christ. So we live in the age of fulfillment and in these last days there's still trouble. There's suffering and tribulation that will remain until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the unfolding revelation of God's grand plan of redemption in the human language is essential. That he reveals himself through words through language. And without verbal revelation Humanity cannot have access to the good news of God's redemption. And that's one of the reasons why we have Bible translators all over around the world. Because people can't hear the gospel until it's written and communicated in their language. You see, God is a communicating God. The progressive revelation has come through God communicating with his people, he speaks. And today in these introductory verses of Hebrews, the author sweeps over the span of God's progressive revelation and lands on Jesus Christ as the climax of His communication. In these last days, we come to understand that the persons and the institutions of the Old Testament point to the person and work of Jesus Christ in whom we find redemption. And like the weary first century Christians, we need to be reminded that God speaks to us through his word today. No matter what you're going through, that God has something to say through his word. And in his word he has told us, uh, he has told us that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So God's final word reveals his finished work so we might rest and trust in our good and sovereign promise keeper. So let's take a look at verses 1 through the first half of verse 2. And here we see the author of Hebrews contrasts the, uh, Revelation in the New Testament with the finality of God's Revelation in Jesus Christ in three different areas. We're going to compare the errors of Revelation, the era, oh, excuse me, the recipients of Revelation, and the agents of Revelation. The error of Revelation, the recipients of Revelation, and the agents of Revelation. Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The first contrast is the era or the epoch in which God spoke. Long ago, contrasted with in these last days. The days of old and the days of here and now. Long ago, which means long before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That Malachi was the last prophet. and Malachi, God stopped speaking through the prophets 400 years before the incarnation of Jesus. That that, that God spoke um, long ago. And the New Testament refers to the last days to describe the period between Jesus' resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Next the contrast is between who God spoke to. God spoke to our fathers long ago and He's spoken to us in the last days. And there's a third and final contrast. and It's the means of God's communication. Long ago he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In the last days he has spoken to us by his son. God's communication to his people was always adequate for the time and it was always progressive, revealing more of God and more of his ways. It was always in continuity never in cont- contradiction with the previous words of God. But in all of this, God's Old Testament words were never complete. As grand as they were, it was nevertheless fragmentary and, fragmentary and lacking. But in these last days, God has spoken again. The revelation of Jesus in these last days brings light and understanding to the entirety of God's Word. That If you want to understand the Old Testament, the best commentary you can pick up is the New Testament. All of Scripture points to Jesus. listen to jesus words to a couple of weary travelers on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has been resurrected. These travelers are, um, were, were maybe firsthand um, uh, firsthand um, viewers of of the resurrection, and they're headed back to their town, and Jesus comes walking up alongside them, and they don 't know who Jesus is. And it reads like this in luke twenty four twenty five through twenty seven And he, Jesus, said to these weary travelers, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament prophets didn't know Jesus. They certainly expected a Messiah, a Savior. But the prophets and Moses were pointing to a Savior they didn't fully know. And again in John 5, 39-40, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his time who knew the ancient scriptures inside and out. And he said this to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. What the prophets had to say in the Old Testament was not the end. God has spoken through His Son, completing and fulfilling what He spoke through the prophets. I hear Christians all the time saying that we must be living in the last days. There's all this stuff going on. We must be living in the last days. Here's a newsflash. You are, and we have been for 2,000 years. The last days um, came about when Jesus rose again from the dead and we will be in the last days until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. In the last days, there are certainly days, these are days of trials and tribulations. They always have been. That in these last days, Nero um, destroyed Christians. We are living in the last days of trials and tribulations, but we are also in living in the day. Of these last days of hope and salvation for all who believe and repent. Because the last day is coming. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And on that final day, Jesus will slam shut the door of the ark. The ark of salvation. But until then, we are living in the last days. God has said all that he needs to say through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the New Testament is basically God's mic drop. All that he has to say is written. In both the Old and the New Testament. And God is speaking to us today through his final word, reminding us of Christ's finished work that gives us hope and faith to rest in all of God's promises. And after contrasting in, in, in verse 1 and the, second half, in the verse, first half of verse 2, um, after God uh, contrasts um, how he previously spoke to his people through the prophets and how God has definitively spoke through his son to his people, the author now reveals seven facets or facts of Jesus Christ, like he he holds up Jesus like a like a jewel to the light and turns him so you can see all the various um, characteristics, or glories, or facets, and perfections of Jesus Christ. And he, he shows us why the revelation given to Jesus is the highest that God can give. Seven facets of Jesus. Um, that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the radiator of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the purifier of sin and he reigns over all things. First he is the heir of all things. The text flows from sonship to airship. In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things. In ancient Israel it was the firstborn son who had the right of inheritance. And by virtue of Jesus' royal sonship He is the heir of the universe including the world to come. A position of eternal blessing and glory. And this immense scope of Christ's inheritance comes from His dual functions as both creator and redeemer. As creator of the universe, he is the natural heir. Paul makes reference to this reality in Colossians 1.16. He says, all things were created for him. And some have translated, all things have been created for him, is that all things were created toward him. That all things are flowing to him. That he is the possessor of all things today, and he'll be the possessor of all things forever. Everything in the universe has its purpose and destiny in the heir Jesus Christ. Romans 11.36 has the same idea as it tells us that everything in the work of creation is from him and through him and to him. Scripture is clear that everything in the physical universe is for him and it is coming to him and will consummate in him as heir of a new creation. But in addition... And I think even a a greater reality, not a greater reality but uh, something to be more in awe of more than uh, his inheritance of the physical world is that Jesus has earned a vast inheritance of the souls of mankind through his atoning work on the cross. That if you know Jesus Christ you are his inheritance. That you are his inheritance forever. In Ephesians 1.18 Paul prayed that the church would have its eyes opened to the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance of the saints. Did you know that you are his treasure? That you are the reason that Jesus condescended and took on flesh not just so that he can redeem the physical universe, but so that he can redeem and have a relationship with you, not just today, but for all of eternity. The apostle Paul is, saying, is praying that his readers would understand how highly they are valued in Christ. Think of it, Jesus is heir of all the heavens and the numberless number, uh, numberless galaxies and the billions of st- uh, stars, but we are his treasure. And he goes on to say, number two, that, that Jesus is, is the creator of all things. And I'm not a scientist. Like, I don't even like. I don't even find. I don't even go look at, what do you call the planetarium things, look at the stars and all that. But like I am just in awe of what I'm going to read to you that about our universe, our galaxy, our galaxy. He's a creator of all things. Our galaxy, our one galaxy is an average-sized galaxy that is over 100,000 light-years across, about 600 trillion miles that's 12 zeros. That's a million millions. Some scientists believe that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million galaxies that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself contains some 100,000 million stars. It's commonly held that, that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies is 100 trillion miles across containing 100,000 thousand million stars. Some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. And the most mind-blowing fact of all of this is that they were created. That Jesus hung the stars one by one. He spoke them into existence. And he has a name for every one of them. John says in 1.3 all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians 1.16 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible. The, the stars that we see even through fiery Colorado and the invisible ones. He created it all. Whether, whether it be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The writer's making the case that all of God's creation belongs to Jesus because it was through his agency. It was through his spoken word that all things came into existence and it's through his power now that the universe is upheld. Number three, he is the sustainer of all things. He's not just a creator. He's not just the heir. All things are coming to him that he created, but he holds all things together. He upholds all things by the power of his word. He literally carries everything forward. It's not like a a weak-kneed weightlifter holding a weight over his head, that he is carrying everything forward towards his appointed purpose. He's not just walking forward um, wondering what's going to happen, that he is carrying everything forward to fulfill his goodwill and his purposes. So Paul can write in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That the reason the stock market's going up, the reason that everything doesn't collapse all around us, is because he is holding all things together. That this world is not as sinful as it could be because he's holding all things together. And as Isaiah 41, when Israel looks around at the dangers all around her, she's prone to anxiety. But when she looks to the sovereign Lord, fear loses its paralyzing power. Listen to the words of the Lord in Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The fact that God holds all things together in the physical universe according to his good purposes. It holds everything together in our life, that there's nothing that is happening right now in your life that catches him by surprise. And that not only does he not catch him by surprise, he cares. He sees you, his ear is inclined to you. And knowing that should bring comfort. And release fears in the midst of uncertainty. Number four, he's the radiator of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The glory of God is, is the image of his perfection, his beauty and his greatness. In Genesis: 127, we're told that Adam was created in the image of God. As God's image bearer, Adam and all of humanity was created to reflect God's glory. That's what we're made for, is to reflect God's glory. But sin destroyed the pure reflection of God's glory in his children. And because of sin, it became impossible for humanity to reflect God's glory. So we needed a Savior. A sinless human that would take our place in receiving the just punishment we deserve from a just God. And what we didn't need is a glory reflector. We needed a glory radiator. One who was unmarred by sin and radiated God's glory. One who was not only fully human, but fully God. And concerning the significance of this word radiance, many have noted that the moon reflects light, whereas the sun radiates light, because the sun is the source of light. The moon simply reflects light. So as image bearers, we're reflectors of God's glory and God's light. Jesus, the perfect one, is the radiator. He is the, he is the source of God's life. He is fully God. Just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ the glorious light of God shines into the, into the hearts of men and women. Jesus was fully human. Human. But unlike Adam, Jesus is the exact imprint of God and is identical in substance to God, which brings us to our fifth facet. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. The word translated exact imprint refers to the image on a coin that perfectly corresponds to the image on the die or the stamp. If you've ever been to a mint, maybe you've gone to the Denver mint. If you go, visitors can participate in the process of making a penny. There's a a giant machine and in this machine there's a metal carved stamp uh, that's invisible to the eye. You can't see the stamp. When each person pushes a button, the machine imprints a coin with the stamps carving. We are God's image bearers who can imperfectly reflect God's glory by the strength of His power. But Jesus is said to be the exact imprint of God and the image of the invisible God as, as Paul says in Colossians 1.15. Jesus was not only human, he had all the character of the Godhead in him. The incarnate Jesus was fully God. God gave us the clearest picture of himself possible when he sent Jesus to earth as man. It might seem impossible to, to, to know God. Maybe you're here this morning and you go like, I'm, like I want to know God. The way to know God is to know Jesus Christ. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And you can't know God. And, and, and believer, you can't know God's character without knowing the person of Jesus Christ. God has made it impossible, God has made it very possible for finite man in these last days to finally see what the infinite God is like. Jesus lived God's holy character. You want to know God's character? See Jesus. We can see God's kindness through Jesus' love. And we can see God's care by seeing Jesus' healings. Do you want to know God and his character? John 14, 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Unlike the imprint of the coin, Jesus Christ does not represent the likeness of God. He is the full manifestation of God himself. Jesus is proof that God doesn't want to remain far off and hidden from us. He condescended. He took on flesh to be with us. He desires that we see Him and know Him and experience Him on a daily basis. Not just know about Him, but to know Him in the deepest manner. And number six facet is that He is the purifier of sin. He made purification for sin. F.F. Bruce described it this way. The wisdom which created the worlds and maintains them in their due order may well beget in us a sense of wandering awe. When we look at the mountains, when we look at creation, we stand in awe. But the grace which has provided a remedy for the defilement of sin by a life freely offered up to God on, behalf, on our behalf calls forth a sense of personal indebtedness which the contemplation of divine activity on the cosmic scale could never invoke. Jesus, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we were far from God, when we were cast out of the garden to the east, forever cast out, that God had a plan, an unfolding progressive plan. His plan was, he, his plan didn't unfold in his mind, but it was, it was unfolding to our finite minds. And he had a plan to um, to purify us, to cleanse us uh, from all of our sin, to cancel the record of debt that stood against us, to, um, to make us as white as snow to forgive our sins as far as the east is from the west so that we could have a relationship with Him. He made purification for our sin once and for all. Your sin believer your sin of, of 20 years ago that still haunts you your fear of sinning tomorrow, the possibility of sin the sin of this morning that, that he took care of it, he, he, he took care of it once and for all. It's finished. Listen to the words of Hebrews uh, chapter 10, 11-14. Every priest, every Old Testament priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, can never purify sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool, for, a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time one offering, that your sin, it's, it's, it's done, it's finished, the last words of Jesus on the cross, what? It is finished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He made purification for sin. It's done. It's past tense which leads to the final point. He reigns over all things. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down. He rested. His work is finished. He's taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules. Where he's a king of kings, the Lord of lords. And unlike the priests of old, he sits. And what is he doing when he's sitting there? He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He's interceding for you right now. He's interceding at the right hand of the Father. And finally, in verse 4, we're not going to spend really any time on it. It says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Next week we're going to look at the significance of distinguishing Jesus from the angels and his position as the royal heir. So I want to finish with this. The book of Hebrews is a book for you and me today. I know many of you and I know that and I know the world we live in and we live live conflicted lives. We live lives where there's trials, where there's tribulations. The enemy is still lying to us. He's on a short leash, and he can only go as far as the Lord will allow him, but he's lying to us. And what we need is not better practices or better systems. What we need is a deeper faith in the promises of a good and sovereign God who's work is complete and finished. And when the inevitable trials come up, don't run from him, run to him. His arms are open. His eyes are on you. His ear is inclined to you. Remember the two great themes of this book as we go through it. That God has spoken all he needs to say through Christ. You are looking for answers to the whatever's ailing you right now? It's right here. It's in the Word. He doesn't mention COVID, but He does talk about how to respond to our governing authorities and how to rest in His sovereignty in the midst of affliction. So God's Word and then God's work, that God has done all He wants to do through Jesus Christ, and that we're living in the last days. Keep your eyes fixed on Him, the author and perfecter of your faith. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for um, your word. I thank you that your word uh, stands on its own. I thank you, God, that um, that I can trust um, in your word and in your spirit to work uh, whatever it is that you choose in each of our lives and in the life of this church. So, spirit of God, I pray that you would, um, we invite you, God, to... Uh, to show us, um, remind us of, uh, of the greatness of Jesus and the finality of your word. And God, would you give us the strength to uh, trust you and you alone um, when we're wrestling with the things of this world. Thank you that you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we pray all this in the powerful name of our risen and ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand?